It really isn't an exaggeration to say that the future of the human race is now at stake. The nature of the changes in climate and environment that we're living with threaten not only the well-being but possibly the very being of our species and this planet in the long term. And in the middle term, they threaten some of the most vulnerable populations on Earth. It's not at all surprising that people in this urgent situation feel they've got to take non-violent direct action. They've got to find a way of putting the case for the human race before those in power. That's what Extinction Rebellion is doing. That's what the Friday strikes are doing. And that's why I believe a wide, deep support from the public is needed to bring this matter fully to the attention of our political leaders, to show that we can actually achieve democratic change for the good of everybody in our world as well as in this country. Dr Rowan Williams voices his support for Extinction Rebellion in a video published by the movement last month. On Sunday, Lord Williams led a vigil for the rebellion outside St Paul's Cathedral, and this week they brought parts of central London to a standstill as they demanded that the government take more action to combat climate change. But who are Extinction Rebellion? What do they seek to achieve? And what are Christians contributing to the movement? I spoke to Joe Ware of Christian Aid. He has written about and campaigned on climate justice issues for some time and has been talking to Christians involved with Extinction Rebellion. He's written a news story for this week's paper, which is also on our website. At the end of this week's episode, we hear a villanelle for Easter Day by Malcolm Geith, which features in his Poets' Corner column this week. If you'd like to read Malcolm Geith each week and all the latest news, features, comment and reviews, try 10 issues for £10 or two months full online access for the same amount. Go to churchtimes.co.uk slash new hyphen reader. So Joe, first, just for those who aren't familiar, can you just tell us who Extinction Rebellion are when, when they first came about? Sure thing. Yeah, Extinction Rebellion have kind of come out of nowhere, I think, for most people. Um, they uh, kind of first appeared last October, shortly after the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change released their big report looking at the kind of state of the climate and uh, and what needs to be done to avoid 1.5 degrees of global warming above pre-industrial levels. We're currently at about one degree and this report was looking into kind of what will happen at 1.5 degrees and, and how can we make sure we don't go above that. And this was quite a big deal and it got headlines around the world and one of the kind of headline figures was the fact that if we carry on as we are, then it would only be 12 years before we reach that that threshold. And, and with that would come uh, further uh, extreme weather and droughts and, and lots of other problematic things that are affecting the climate and, and the world. So it kind of was a response to that, I think, uh, largely. And a few weeks later, the UK Chancellor produced his budget and uh, within the, the, his speech, it didn't mention climate change once. And this was, I think, a kind of tipping point for a lot of the members of the Extinction Rebellion who thought, you know what, we've just had the biggest kind of clarion call from the world scientists and, and we're not seeing the political action needed. And I think they took the, the calculation that something different needs to be done, really. And so that's, uh, that's when they kind of formed and, and, uh, and it's sort of been growing since then. And, and what are they calling for specifically? So they've got three asks. Uh, the first one is for the government to declare a climate emergency. The second is for the government to um, legislate for the UK to go net zero emissions by 2025. Uh, that is to effectively reduce uh, almost all emissions to zero. There'll be a little bit 
of wiggle room because there are some things which are very hard to get to absolute zero, but that would be counterbalanced by kind of the creation of carbon sinks, more forest planting, that sort of thing. And then the third thing is to create a citizens' assembly on climate change. So there would be a kind of uh, almost a kind of national jury service of, of members of the public that would decide on kind of matters regarding uh, kind of climate change rather than just leaving that to kind of the political infighting between parties. I and mean, you've been involved in this area of campaigning on climate change and, and lobbying for some time. Do you think those aims are deliverable and do you think they have a realistic chance of, of achieving them? I mean, I think that the, all three of them are, are actually have got merit. And, and uh, the first one, I think, is actually very doable. A lot of councils around the country are actually already declaring a climate emergency. And it's something which um, I think would just be a kind of rhetorical point uh, to recognise that actually the situation uh, that we face. Um, the third one, I think, is also extremely sensible. And uh, you have uh, these kind of citizen assemblies in Ireland to decide kind of big kind of issues uh, around the constitution. Um, and it's seen as a real success there. It's kind of a democratic process that kind of brings actually the country together in a way that political kind of discussions often don't. And the second one, I think, is, is kind of also uh, very important. And there is a lot of discussion at the moment about this net zero figure and and basically the world kind of needs to go net zero by 2050. 2025 is on the ambitious end of that spectrum but to be honest you know richer countries like the UK will need to be some of the first to go net zero because a we have got the capacity to do that because we're one of the richest countries in the world but also the reason we're so rich is because we industrialised first and therefore we have benefited from a lot of carbon-based development. And and the reason that we are so well off is partly because we were able to burn a lot of carbon dioxide to get to that kind of uh, position. And so it's it's only right that it would be rich countries that would um, go net zero uh, first. The government has actually written to the Climate Change Committee to ask, uh, which is the kind of formal government advice um, panel, to... Um, kind of report really on what would be the what is the right date for the government to legislate and for the UK to go net zero and a number of other organizations are calling for it to be by at least 2045 so yeah the extension rebellion is 2025 is obviously on the kind of tougher end of the spectrum but but arguably that's the sort of you know we need we do need sort of rapid action which we're not seeing yet and so that's that's why they're saying that to move on to Extinction Rebellion's methods, I mean, many who've been in central London this week will have seen it uh, firsthand or will have certainly seen it on the news. Um, this is direct action. It's causing disruption. Um, with, to what end? That's right. So they, uh, they're driving, they drove a couple of lorries onto Waterloo Bridge and Marble Arch Roundabout and have been blockading roads. And uh, they've turned some of these places that are usually kind of uh, traffic uh, you know, constant traffic jams full of cars into sort of pedestrianised uh, um, kind of festivals. Um, it's been quite interesting to see. But yes, their, their kind of view is that they don't want to cause disruption um, for the sake of it. Their argument is ultimately that they've tried to ask nicely and they've been very polite. They've written to their MPs, they've gone on marches, they have signed petitions for many years. And and yet, actually, we're not on track. So, so and this is their argument that ultimately you know something needs to change i guess they would uh, cite albert einstein with his definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result and so they feel that they've kind of exhausted the um those kind of more conventional forms and they're kind of deciding that we're running out of time and so something a bit more drastic is needed and, and their plan is to cause a disruption to the government economic disruption um to the country 
and to sort of kind of force the government to take them seriously because kind of being nice about it hasn't uh, hasn't achieved that but they're, they're, they're it's interesting to watch them when, when they do their kind of walk out into the road to block the roads they're not doing it to be antagonistic they kind of bring cake and biscuits and uh, for all, all the drivers that are stuck in the traffic jam and they try and explain and talk and um it's definitely a different feel than than some of the protests which which kind of almost uh seek to treat uh, those people caught up in it as part of the problem they recognize that i think the people that are in traffic jams and the rest of it are not you know at fault uh they're kind of uh you know innocent victims to some degree of of, of the protest but they feel that uh, it's a needed uh, disruption to kind of um, wake the government up to take action. And then you report in the paper in our issue this week about um, the involvement of Christians. Christians helped to bring areas of central London to a standstill. That might surprise some people. Um, can you tell us about some of the people you met? Um, I guess the most high profile who's been involved was um, Rowan Williams, former Archbishop of Canterbury. That's right. Yes, Rowan has been kind of uh, one of the leading voices, actually. Um, I don't think he's uh, one of the organisers, but he certainly lent his support. And he was at the um, vigil on Sunday night uh, outside St Paul's, a prayer vigil, which he led um, uh, for the Extinction Rebellion. And he assigned letters uh, with other academics and religious leaders in support of the movement and has kind of uh, been quite articulate in his support of that um but yes there's a, a group called the christian climate action who are um a, a small group of christians who are part of the extinction rebellion and they um uh, they take part in in these kinds of activities and so um they're a real mixture you know you've got you've got people who are relatively young in their 20s and 30s all the way up to pensioners um uh, there's a guy called Phil Kingston, who's 83, a guy called Reggie, who's uh, 85. Um, and and uh, yeah, they, you know, they're not the, your usual climate activists. Um, and uh, they're often, uh, you know, they don't generally break the law. In fact, um, Phil is a former parole officer uh, turned um, uh, arrestee. So uh, that's a kind of uh, unusual combination. And yeah, they, they're basically law-abiding citizens who have felt moved to um, to take this sort of drastic action um, because they, they feel it's really important and, uh, and they're motivated by their faith. And so they speak often about the act of Jesus actually when he was uh, when he saw the injustice taking place in the temple and the moneylenders exploiting the poor that he didn't passively sit by and watch it or let it happen he actually went away made a whip um, came back and you know turned over the tables and drove them out and so they they definitely sort of feel that I think that, that they're sort of an inspiration from that sort of story and recognize that you know they they're not in the business of being violent towards people or, or aggressive but they they recognize there is a, a place for more uh, direct action one of the members of christian climate action is a catholic priest called martin newell uh, from birmingham and he was chatting to a, a policeman on uh, one of these protests and the policeman was asking him about you know what would jesus you know think of what you're doing and martin told him the story about about Jesus in the temple where he uh, drove out the moneylenders and saw this injustice taking place and wanted to do something about it. And uh, so Martin told this story to the policeman and the policeman said that if Jesus had done that today, he would have been arrested and charged with a public order offence, which I thought was quite interesting. And they, they also feel that um, they're kind of following the footsteps of some of the great kind of social justice campaigners of the, of the past, people that we now say are on the right side of history, whether that's the suffragists in the UK, who we now have a, a statue outside uh, Parliament Square. Um, and we also have uh, those people in 
the, in America in the South in the 60s, who, uh, along with Martin Luther King, who took part in this sort of action and are now hailed as people who were effectively speaking truth to power. And I think they recognise that, you know, ultimately climate change is something which will affect everyone and that possibly in a few years' time we're going to look back and go, why were we not more active? Why didn't we take action when we knew what was going to happen? And possibly um, they feel like, you know, they, they want to be able to tell their children and grandchildren that they at least did something about it. Yeah, so they feel morally compelled. I, I noticed the atmosphere at the protest, just from footage I've seen on social media, you know, when arrests take place, it, it doesn't seem terribly aggressive or violent. So there's people singing, um, there's a certain amount of joy and a festival atmosphere there. Exactly, that that's the word for it, I think. And certainly watching the, um, at the Marble Arch uh, kind of protest where I went down on Monday, the Christian climate activists were there with their big banner singing Amazing Grace. And it was extremely kind of... Um, sort of family friendly there was lots of small children there um there was no um kind of uh, sort of super aggressive stuff that you often see maybe at kind of the anti-capitalist rallies around the g7 and the g8 meeting sometimes it was um yeah very friendly um like you say joyous um kind of lots of singing and dancing there's art installations there's talks there's workshops um and yeah it's remarkable how that is the case and on waterloo bridge they've turned that into the garden bridge which um which some will recall that was Boris Johnson's big plan um, to turn a, to build a garden bridge across the Thames. And so they decided to turn Waterloo Bridge into the garden bridge by bringing trees and plants and bushes. And um, people were encouraged to bring pot plants with them. There's a little, a little skate park that they installed and there's people handing out food. And uh, it does feel like a kind of uh, summer fate uh, almost, uh, but obviously with a sort of slightly more political angle um, with, uh, with the protest. We've got people gluing themselves to lorries, people refusing to be moved and managing to stay the whole night in different places. Um, but there have been many arrests. Do you think this will last? Well, they've intended to um, to stay for two weeks if they can or until the government agrees to meet them to discuss their, their demands. And so, um, yeah, they showed up on Monday and they kind of they look like they're bedding in for a long stay. They have portaloos, they have uh, camping gear, um, they have locked themselves to a lorry on Waterloo Bridge and one in Marble Arch. They've also um, shut down Parliament Square at times. I think that might be clear, I'm not quite sure yet. Um, and also Piccadilly Circus and Oxford Circus were also occupied. And so, um, yeah, they're very much intending to to stay as long as they can and there's going to be some uh, music events taking place later today these lorries have been turned into uh, music stages and uh, apparently paloma faith has been booked to uh, perform on the one at marble arch at six o'clock on uh, today which is wednesday so they're planning definitely to to stay as long as they can um yeah there's been i think nearly 300 arrests now um which is quite a high number but even that is part of their theory of change they recognize that actually in all of the examples from history where things have happened there's been arrests a part of it and even that itself kind of generates attention and kind of causes um, people to think about what they're doing so yeah they're, they're hoping to be here um, for uh, as long as they can they can be and um, I think it looks like you know at least the end of this week and and we'll see what happens into next week here is a villanelle for Easter day on Easter day as though some heavy stone were rolled away, you find an open door where all was closed, wide as an empty tomb on Easter day. 
Lost in your own dark wood, alone, astray, you pause, as though some secret were disclosed, as though some heavy stone were rolled away. You glimpse the sky above you, wan and grey, wide through these shadowed branches interposed, wide as an empty tomb on Easter day. Perhaps there's light enough to find your way, for now the tangled wood feels less enclosed, as though some heavy stone were rolled away. You lift your feet out of the miry clay and seek the light in which you once reposed, wide as an empty tomb on Easter day. And then love calls your name. You hear him say, the way is open. Death has been deposed, as though some heavy stone were rolled away, and you are free at last on Easter Day. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode.